Welcome to episode 70 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are continuing our Summer of Archetype series with Robin Hood narratives or The Oppressed versus The Oppressor. And I'm going to have to ask you guys to forgive audio quality again this week. Um, if you hear kind of like vague roaring in the background, that's actually my AC running. Um, we tried recording this with my AC turned off, but my computer overheated so quickly that it wouldn't record. Um, so I do apologize for that. And if it like shuts on and off, that's just, you know, like the temperature being regulated. I'm back home in North Carolina where it is approximately a thousand degrees with a thousand percent humidity. So, (laughs) so anyway, uh, how are you, Kelly? I am doing well. How are you? How was uh, Comic-Con and your vacation? It was really nice. I think I should have planned it differently in that I should have given myself more time to recover from Comic-Con because I, I, I still am like kind of loopy from all of the peopling that I did. And it wasn't even like I was on a panel every day or had a signing every day like Lee or Marie or um, Beth Revis. But I just was surrounded by so many people and just, you know, talking and schmoozing and all that sort of stuff that I'm, like, wrecked. Even even just picking up my badge. So I went Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I stayed with Beth Revis, which was a, which is why she was a guest on last week's podcast, because we <laughs> I was recording in the hotel room, and she walked in. Um, but it was... I picked up my badge on Thursday, you know, and I had to stand in line to go get it and everything. And I even had a shorter line because I was an exhibitor or not an exhibitor, but I was like, I had, a, I was on the program right. there. And even that, like I, I got it and I got my bag and my swag and, um, they give you little pins and stuff. And I set up everything on my like lanyard and I just sat down because I was just like, <laughs> And I could feel all of the energy. I could literally feel energy like leaving yeah. my pores, yep. just leaving my pores. And then, like when you walk the floor, which is super cool, um, it's just so many people there. And I think there was something like a hundred and fifty thousand people at Comic Con this year. It's just tiring. So it was, you know. And then I, and then, so after my panel on Sunday. I went to the train station because I took the train from Los Angeles to San Diego and back. I went to the train station an hour and a half ahead of time, thinking maybe that would be enough time to get a seat. It was not enough time to get a seat. (laughs) Um, People had been lining up for my train two and a half hours before, and the line to get even board the train wrapped around the depot twice. And I was like, fine, we'll see. I lucked out, though, because I sat, I got on the train, and there were no seats, so I just sat in the stairwell. But the person right next to me got off, like, three stops in. So I just was like, yes! Stole the seat. Um, But yeah, it was very tiring, and then I had, like, one day to kind of 
decompress before I flew back home to North Carolina. And I was like, I did this wrong. I should have took it the other way around. I should have <laughs> should have started with this and then had like three weeks off to recover. But that's me. I'm back. Um, otherwise, my extended stay was very nice. You know, it was nice to go home. It wasn't even like I went home to be somebody's daughter. I went home to basically be my parents' pet. Like, I'm just like, just feed me. <laughs> feed me and pet my hair and tell me tell me I'm pretty. It's like that's basically what I went home for. And they obliged, which was very nice. So. Excellent. So anyway, this week we are talking about Robin Hood narratives or the oppressed versus the oppressor, which is maybe a little too on the nose, um, given the current political yeah. climate. Um, yeah, when we were, like, hypothetically listing topics, this seemed like a good idea. And today, I'm just like, well. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so I think Robin Hood narratives are basically what they say. Um, it's, some, it's, an, it's an oppressed class of people rising up to overthrow an unjust... Uh, usually, it's a tyrannical king or a monarch, but sometimes it's a system... Um, that has to be dismantled. Um, they this can run the gamut. This can span all sorts of of genres and categories and narratives from something mm-hmm. as kind of simple as maybe not the the best word, but you know, from like Robin Hood, which is what we named it after, uh, to something most most recently something like The Hunger Games. Uh, so I guess I want to open it up with is there is there any kind of trope or something that you think aside from the oppressed versus the oppressor which is what we kind of boiled it down to is there sort of a trope that you think is common or inherent in all of these do you think that they also dovetail into the chosen one narrative or I think um it can it can dovetail into the chosen one narrative. I think you know when you think about oppressed people rising up, a lot of times we are focused on one character, one protagonist, and so then that kind of can morph into a chosen one story. Um, but I don't think that all chosen one stories are about an oppressed class defeating an oppressor. So um, you know, I think they can kind of coexist together. I think that that's kind of true of a lots of archetypes as we talk right. about them more and more, you know, we start teasing out other ones that are kind of intertwined. Um, so I think that's a part of it, but always not necessarily always inherent. Um, I'm trying to think of more of an ensemble type situation in this sort of a story. And I don't know that I have one off the top of my head. Everything that I'm thinking of, Hunger Games, Red Rising is another one I was thinking mm-hmm. of, um, you know, as kind of more of a central figure that has, you know, sidekicks, but <laughs> but not a true ensemble. It's sort of like, it's so, like, revolution books are easy to read and empathize with, but there are no books not that there are none, but there are few books that actually deal with governing, mm. which you would argue is actually the harder task. It's easy to throw well, something over, but governing is really hard. Yeah. What about like Bitter Blue for a governing book? 
bitter it's more blue. about her own personal like coming of age, but yeah, bitter blue second half of Hamilton, I guess, is really about mm-hmm. how hard it, you know, and George Washington even says that, <laughs> you know, winning is easy, young man, governing's harder. Governing's harder. Um, which is absolutely true, and I think there are a lot of, there aren't a lot of books, I think, that show what happens after you, quote, win. After right. the oppressed class wins, what happens what after then? that? What then? What right. then? A lot of them end at the moment of victory or very shortly after, and they kind of give a brief coda of, and now things are better. Right. Um, which is one thing I would say about The Hunger Games, is that it does, it, sh- it is about an underclass overthrowing um, an unjust rule, and yet it also shows that it's not so cut and dry, that it's not, you know, good people versus bad people, because, you know, like, coin is kind of terrible... You know, and even after they've, quote, won, it's not all perfect. You know, they still struggle with things. And um, so I I do give The Hunger Games props for that. Because I feel like even, like, a series like Red Rising, which which both you and I really enjoyed, it doesn't show the aftermath of of that revolution. No, it does not. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of, do you, I don't think it's part. It should be part, but I would be interested in seeing those Robin Hood narratives kind of deal with deal with the fallout. Not even the fallout. Deal with what next. Like, how do you, now that you've won, how do you go about building the society that you fought for? Right. I think that would be really, really interesting. And now I want that. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you think of any other, well, let's start with Robin Hood in particular, mm-hmm. because I wouldn't even say that he's overthrowing an entire society. No, he is, um, he's not quite circumnavigating it, but he's, he's a wrench in the system. He's not quite taking it down, but he's, he's disrupting it when he can. Yeah, I... He's more of a trickster in many ways. He, you know, goes in and he kind of screws things up for the rich Mm. to help out the poor. So he's more... There are a lot of, you know, a lot of various Native American myths or even European myths or folklore about trickster figures Mm -hmm. or, like, Prometheus. I love a trickster figure, which is probably why I like... Robin Hood as a figure so much. Like, even as a child, I really loved Robin Hood stories. The sort of, like, really clever uh, person who, you know, just messes things up and, you know, makes lives a little Mm -hmm. bit better by his or her actions. So, um, but I still categorize Robin Hood as oppressed versus oppressor. Mm. In, I don't know, in the adaptations that I read when I was a child... By, I think it was by Robert Lancelot Green. Mm-hmm. He wrote about Robin Hood kind of mixing, like, the folkloric ballads with, like, a, quote, historical figure of Robin... This was at the time post-Norman invasion, so it was, like, Saxons versus Normans. And I remember it being, as a, being a child and being like, I thought everybody was just English. Right. <laughs> I didn't realize there were other, like class things that play there but I do um, and Robin being was Robin was noble by virtue of his Norman father I guess 
but uh, of the people because of his Saxon heritage as well. Right. That was kind of how it was put forth for me. Yeah, a lot of times I feel like that kind of Robin Hood figure does straddle some sort of Mm -hmm. a class line. You know, even in Red Rising, you know, he's not truly of the upper class, but he's infiltrated it and passes as one of them and has formed allies among them, Um, you know, even though he's originally from the lower class. And it also reminds me, too, of a book that I read... Years and years and years ago, I mean, this was in the late 90s, um, The Thief Lord by oh, yes. Cornelia... Fuca. Yes. Um, which is draws a lot on Robin Hood, from what I remember. It's been years since I read it, but it's a really delightful book. But essentially, there's kind of like a group of... Um, street urchins. Peter Panish, too, I would say. Yeah, there's kind of like a Lost Boys-type group of um, street urchins, and then this one, they're kind of their leader, who comes and goes. And um, he's very, you know, he pickpockets rich people and brings them food and brings them money and all this stuff, and kind of as you go on, you discover that he himself is the son of a wealthy uh, merchant, I think. And so he's actually a member of the upper class, but he's helping, um, you know, these poor kids. And so, yeah, Peter Pan and Robin Hood is kind of tied up in that book, which is also really great. It's also like the character of the Artful Dodger from Mm -hmm. Oliver Twist, which I had a huge crush on as a child as well, the character of the Artful Dodger. Um, Not that he's really, I don't think Dodger was part of the upper class, really, but he was somebody with a lot of street smarts that... Mm -hmm you know, assisted the the street urchins of Fagin's gang and all that sort of stuff. So there is something appealing about somebody who fights for the underdog. Mm. Um, which is sort of, it's not, but it's not, it's like related, but not a chosen one narrative. Right. And what would you say is the real defining difference between, I mean, like, as we said before, they can absolutely overlap and kind of mm-hmm. be the same narrative. But there is a difference. There is a difference. I think that part of the difference is in scope. Um, I feel like with these Robin Hood-type stories, the scope is m- usually more focused. They're trying to help a certain group of people, um, whereas Chosen One can be much... It's like, I'm saving the world. It's like a much broader... has much more reach, I think, sometimes. And so I think... Robin Hood stories are a specific, they're contained in a way. It's about this community. It's about this group of people. It's about, you know, these oppressors. It's a smaller scale story, I think. I, I don't know if I would consider it a small, smaller scale story. I think that both Robin Hood and Prince John are really emblematic or even like Guy de Gisborne or uh, the Sheriff of Mm. Nottingham are all symbols of something. So Robin Hood is a symbol of the oppressed class and Prince John is a symbol of the upper class. And I would say the the same thing with like the Hunger Games. Katniss is a symbol, quite literally. She's the Mockingjay, right? So she's the symbol of this resistance. And then you have um, President Snow, who is really more of like a symbol of the upper class. So I think that it really is still a, it's a system versus system type thing. Rather right. than, like, a save-the-world type thing. Mm. 
Um, because a lot of times chosen ones save the world as is, whereas I feel like the oppressed versus the oppressor, it's about changing the the world world as it is. Um, here's one that I'm kind of curious about. Star Wars. Mm. It's, it's not a Robin Hood narrative, but it does contain a Robin Hood figure. Han. I would consider right. Han kind of that sort of er, tricksterish rogue. Yeah. Um, but it's not an oppress. Well, now that I think about it, it can kind of contain a lot of different things because then you have Luke, who's really essentially a chosen one. Mm-hmm. And then you have, and he's restoring order, more or less. And then at the same time, you have Leia's storyline, and she really is fighting the system. Mm hmm. So, it's like those two characters are almost in sort of different archetypal narratives. I don't yeah, know. I can see that. What would you consider Star Wars as a whole? The original trilogy, not the prequel. Um, I mean, I think I would probably go with a chosen one story if I could only pick one I think probably at its purest core that is what it's about it's about Luke coming into his power using his unique abilities and his unique relationship with Darth Vader to dismantle you know the evil in the world I think I think what is so great about something like Star Wars is that it is a big enough universe and world to encompass different types of narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Rogue One, which I don't think you've seen still. I just saw the first half of it last night, and we're okay. going to watch the second half of it tonight. Okay. Because <laughs> um, we're too old to stay up and watch the full movie anymore without getting tired. <laughs> Um, Rogue One is not a Chosen One story, and it is, in fact, a side narrative in the Star Wars universe. Um, But I like that this universe is big enough for each... That's the thing about storytelling, right? You always have to kind of focus on one story if you can. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that you can't have secondary or tertiary stories within the, the greater novel or series that you're trying to tell, but generally there's, like, one overarching story. Right. Um, but what's kind of great about Star Wars, like if you think about any property and you think, think, okay, I'm going to pick this character to tell the story from, it's a different thing. Like, for example, if you were to tell the original trilogy from Leia's point of view, it's very different. Because it isn't a chosen one narrative with her. And she still is a main character. And for her, it's about right. gathering resources and overthrowing the Empire. And, you know, and for her, all like once the group splits up, essentially, in the movie, the second movie, it's about that. It's about gathering their armies and forces and getting in and sneaking in and taking these things down and blah, blah, blah. So in some ways, it is an oppressed versus oppressor narrative, but only if it's filtered through Leia's point of view. Right. Um, or like Harry Potter, like what would that story be if it was told from Hermione's point of view? Or even Neville's point of view, like that would be interesting to kind of see mm-hmm. the flip side of somebody who almost was the chosen one but isn't. 
Right. Yeah, we talked about that in our chosen one thing. That would be interesting to see that. But it's hard, too, because if there is a chosen one, that's always kind of going to be where the main story is. And so it's going to be hard not to have that uh, that in your... Not have that be the POV character. I think it could be... It's interesting because... I, you've read at least part of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Yeah, I read the first one and a half books. Okay. Um, having I've read all of the books now, and I don't know what I would classify this series as. It's not definitely not a Chosen One story. Um, it's not even a Robin Hood narrative at all. So I'm, like, trying to figure out where this series gets classified. It it contains, each storyline contains these things. Right. Um, these characters, the main characters, you know, it contains these things. Like, I would probably say Jon Snow's storyline is a chosen one narrative. Right. Um, but what is the entire... What is the what entire is the series, thing? the overarching? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like with epics sometimes because they are epic and contain so much it is difficult to distill them into that sort of a one singular defining archetype that overarches everything um you know because there's so many characters and there's so many different plot lines and things that are given weight and you know one person could be a protagonist in their point of view but when you switch to someone else's point of view they're an antagonist and it's not clear you know necessarily um what type of story overall is trying to be told and I guess yeah I don't know just like I think of like epics or like political intrigue or like kind of like a history like not history in the sense of like historical but like a a telling of events like an, a history of yeah I think it's also like did you ever read Pillars of Earth yes that's the other book I was thinking of actually which is a great book <laughs> it's a great book and it's really hard to describe to people what this book is mm-hmm. about because yeah. when you try and describe it it's you're kind about of like building a cathedral, cathedral? That's it. <laughs> I know it sounds really boring, but it's so engrossing. It's so riveting. It's so riveting. Um, and I think it's it's almost like that. I almost feel like Game of Thrones is kind of a almost a multi generational story, even though yeah, it only focuses really on maybe like one or two generations. But and it's all happening in real time as opposed to like actually following generations. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is that kind of chronicle. Yeah. Of an epoch, perhaps. Yeah. I think that is more common in things like historical fantasy or epic fantasy. Um, although... And I would de- definitely classify Game of Thrones as epic fantasy. Because oh, yes. of the scale and the storylines it covers and all that sort of stuff. Um, versus something like high fantasy, which is, I think... It can be epic, you know, like some epic fantasies are high fantasies, but, um, I, yeah, it's, it's historical and fantasy. I can't think, maybe science fiction can have like an epic science fiction. Hmm. Maybe like the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov would be considered epic science fiction. Um, 
which is kind of interesting. And I don't know if you've read the Foundation trilogy at all. I have not. It was years and years ago, so I barely remember this. I only read the Foundation trilogy because, and I read it very young, <laughs> because one of our books um, that we had assigned reading was Asimov's like middle grade children's series about Norby the robot. So I read those, and I enjoyed those a lot. They were very enjoyable, and so I was like, oh, I recognize this name, and I picked up the foundation, and I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> maybe maybe it's worth revisiting, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yikes. Um, any other things that we want to add about the oppressed versus the oppressor narrative? And, like, how it differentiates... We've sort of talked about how it differentiates from The Chosen One, um, which is, I think, one deals with change and the other one deals, Mm -hmm. I think, with not even restoring the status quo, but really with saving the Fighting off a coming darkness or evil. It's keeping something else at bay. One is, I guess, more defensive, if you want to look at it that way. One is more, yeah. like, defensive, and the other one is more aggressive. Or yeah. not even that's... Because if you're defending against a coming darkness, you're really, def- you know, fighting yeah. off something that will change, and you're trying to maintain things. Whereas if you're overthrowing something, that is really a narrative about change. Yeah. And all stories are about change, I suppose, but... Oh, Sure. Sure. Something, one interesting thing that I think we could touch on a little bit more in depth that we did bring up, um, that is not necessarily always a part of this narrative, but is a common part of this narrative, is the trickster figure Mm -hmm. and the trickster archetype. And I think it's such an interesting character type and can manifest in so many different ways. And I think... You know, I think it's a type that we both just like, and yeah. it might be fun to just talk about what makes a trickster a trickster. Do you? I you do. I think you find tricksters more common in the oppressed versus oppressor narrative, because I think by definition, a trickster does not live within the rules, mm. and it's easier to find that in in a Robin Hood narrative because you're trying to basically overthrow the status quo. So somebody who does not live within the rules or confines of the status quo, then it's much easier to have a trickster figure. And I think it's also easier to have a trickster hero Mm. in that case. Because I think in a Chosen One narrative, it's kind of hard to have a trickster hero. Yeah. What do you think the defining characteristics are of a trickster? I think that mostly that their morality is not necessarily in line with everyone else's. I think that's kind of the basic definition of a trickster. If you think about trickster figures from mythology and folklore, you think about like Loki from uh, Norse mythology, who is sometimes evil and sometimes not. He just kind of does things or sometimes as female because he can switch sexes as well. Um, Kind of an agent of chaos more than actually Mm -hmm. a force for good or evil. But I also feel like tricksters have their own moral core or code Mm -hmm. that they kind of operate on. Because otherwise you just have somebody who just has no center one way or another. They're just 
doing things for the sake of it as opposed to doing it for any particular reason or for anything interesting. Mm-hmm. So what so, is yours? I No, I would agree with you. I think that they do have an internal morality, but I think that that their own internal morality does not necessarily reflect the morality of the world that they exist in. I think it's very singular to their own purposes. Um, and I do think that there is an element of chaos with them. I think usually they're, you know, we characterize them. I think a lot of times we see them as being, um, quick-witted there's sometimes banter and sometimes you know they're funny but they can also be terrifying you know you think of them as having like many faces and being able to kind of turn on a dime i was thinking about different trickster characters that i love um you know and of course one of my favorite books that i've talked about here on before from uh, tamara pierce is called trickster's choice it's about the trickster god <laughs> in mm. that uh, in the world of tortal and i just love him i think he's so wonderful and hilarious and he's probably my favorite deity um of all the ones that tamara pierce has written about actually um, my favorite's the graveyard hag um, well, yes. She's also a trickster she's god. She's also a trickster god. She's my favorite, She's pretty though. great. She's pretty She's, she's pretty goals, great. to be honest. Like, yeah. I want to grow so, up to be her. <laughs> so I was thinking about it, and I was, you know, to go back to one of the stories that we always use for examples, Harry Potter, is Dumbledore the trickster figure in that series? It It is a good question, actually. Because... Because it's Harry's narrative, he functions in the story as, like, the... He functions in the story as the mentor, more or less. Right. I don't know if he's archetypally a trickster figure in the narrative, though. I think in the first three books, definitely not. He's he's presented as very benevolent and very... It's really actually not until the seventh book when we kind of retcon everything that we thought we understood about Dumbledore when we get all this new information that Harry didn't have access to before that kind of casts him in this more questionable light where Dumbledore is doing things for specific reasons. He has, you know, his own reasons for doing things and he's following his own moral code, but it's not necessarily like the benevolent goodness that we always thought that it was. It's more complicated than that. I wouldn't consider him a trickster figure for one thing, which is the trickster is always deceiving something in power. And throughout the entire series, Dumbledore is more or less in power. He's the one in power. He is the one in power. Deceiving the people beneath him, yeah. So I think there is always an underdog element to the trickster. Even in, like I said, like a lot of Native American myths, there are like the, you know, the figure of the coyote or the raven. Or mm-hmm. um, even like Prometheus in Greek myths, he tricks the gods to bring fire to man. So it's always yeah. like a figure who's tricking someone in power, either for good or for bad. You know, like it could yeah. be for whatever reason, but it's always an element, I think, of the underdog to the trickster. So for that reason, I don't think Dumbledore is one. And I'm trying to think of if there is one at all in that series. I mean, I think you get... I think you get Fred and George. Right, you know, or, like, Peeves. Like, 
Yeah, but nothing, nobody really kind of fulfills that. I, I guess the closest you would say is Fred and George, of yeah. the twins, um, who are incidentally some pretty much like my only favorite Weasleys. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only Weasleys I really like. They're wonderful. You don't really see enough of Bill or Charlie to have an opinion, I think, on either of them. Percy's insufferable. Ron is insufferable. Ginny is no personality. So by default, almost, it has to be the twins. Um, But also because I am a sucker for trickster figures in fiction. So I think I naturally gravitate towards them. Here's one that I was thinking of. Um... In Six of Crows, which is, I think, a, a book we'll probably talk about in our, like, heist or revenge narrative episode. Yes. But the figure of Kaz Brecker, what would mm-hmm. you consider him? I consider him a trickster figure, too. Really? Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't. But I don't know what I would consider him instead, other than the leader, which is different than the chosen one. Um... I don't know that... I think with me, and this could just be me again and not necessarily the archetype itself, I think with me, I think of... I associate the trickster figure with a potential for lightness, um, like a, a something nonchalant or carefree or light about them um, that I don't see in Kaz. But that just that's not necessarily to say that that is a hallmark of that trope. That's just kind of my own association with it. I think all of the tricksters that I can think of that I love are are I don't know. Just I think of them as being lighter and Kaz is very heavy. <laughs> I mean Kaz's issues. I don't I don't know. I think I think he's funny. I guess he also falls more in line with um, the Xanatos trope. The figure, um, if you've not read TV tropes, this is, or the Xanatos Gambit is actually the name of the trope, but the character is David Xanatos, who is a trickster uh, figure from the TV show Gargoyles, Ah. which I love. And he is initially a villain in the series. He... Mm -hmm. But he's one of those villains that, like, you know, because they are, he's the figure against which the gargoyles are working. There's, usually they're trying to foil his plan here or there. But over the course of the series, his motivations start to become more gray. Or rather, the Mm -hmm. more we know him, the more his motivations start to shift for us. And he's always kind of got plans within plans within plans within plans within plans. Um, And also... He also, anytime his plans get foiled by the gargoyles, he's always, he's got a good nature about it. He's like, all right, that didn't work, so we're going to try the next thing. Um, So I love this character a lot, and for, and he's, the trope is named after him for very good reason. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of figures in fiction that kind of follow along the the Xanatos line, like Melisande from the Kushel's. Legacy books or mm-hmm. Ben Linus. What's his face? What's his face from Demon's Lexicon? Alec? Alex? I can't remember the Alan, character's name. Alan. 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 Oh my god, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like Alan until we got to Sin's book. 
But once we got to that book, though... I know. I was like, I'm into this. <laughs> so good. I'm absolutely into this character all of a sudden. He is like, I don't know. He may be more disturbing to me than Kazbrecker. Oh, absolutely. That child... <laughs> That poor young man is so messed up. Oh my god. He is. He's absolutely more disturbing than Cass. I would agree. Oh, oh man. If you guys have not but read I, The Demon's Lexicon, I would absolutely recommend these to you guys. It's really great. They're really wonderful books. Uh, I enjoyed them quite a bit. Um, well, similarly, and I, we can talk this talk about this later as well, the, um, there's a character of Eugenides from Megan Wayland Turner's The Queen's Thief series. Absolutely a trickster. But the thing is, he's a trickster until he becomes the one in power, and then he becomes David Xanatos. Maybe that's why I like him so much as a character. I always like characters yeah. that always have, you know, multiple things. They've got multiple irons and different fires, and they're, you yeah. know, kind of everything's going yeah. on at once, and they've got to coordinate everything. I am a huge sucker mm. for that. Um, but yeah, I think, I do think the trickster has the element of the underdog. There is, there is really kind of, you have to trick the one in power in order to be considered a trickster. Right, because otherwise you would just take it. The yes. reason that you have to be tricky is right. because for what you can't just take it. So that's why you have to be tricky. I mean, like I said, for the oppressed versus the oppressor, there it does overlap with the chosen one in that often a chosen one mm-hmm. is working against a figure in power. But that is not always the case. And with the chosen one it often is it often is an element of maintaining the status quo by the end, I think. Because even for something like Lord of the Rings, which Frodo is functions as the Chosen One character, even if there is no prophecy laid upon him, he's the one who undertakes the task to destroy the One Ring. And it's to destroy the One Ring is to basically return the world to a state of peace. Yeah. But not necessarily to change the world for better. So I think that's kind of where the difference is between these two sorts of narratives. So is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of this particular trope? I mean, both Kelly and I really like these stories a lot. Yeah. I think I enjoy them a little bit more than Chosen One narratives. But I would like to see... I would like to see what... I think I would like more stories... To show what happens afterwards. Yes. Like, after everyone's been taken down, then what happens? Yeah. How do you rebuild a society? Yeah, after you've, quote, won. Like, how do you make the better world that you were fighting for? Right. I feel like there must be books like this that I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head. I don't know. I mean, if there are, I'm sure some exist because there's something, you know, everything exists. But I think it is hard because it is, it has less narrative momentum. It's a slower story and there's no definitive end. You never stop progressing. Like you never, your society is never finished. You never like wipe your hands and say, yes, I'm done. So it's harder to find like, what are you working toward in your narrative? I guess one last coda is what would you consider, because I think you could probably consider dystopian in this 
genre of oppressed versus oppressor because it's almost always somebody's eyes are being opened to how terrible their society is and then they change it. Right. Like The Giver. I always think of The Giver mm. as kind of the big one. And he, Yeah, the original. Yeah, in in why in children's fiction cuz why didn't exist then. Um but there were a lot of these stories, especially around the time The Hunger Games was published, there were a lot of dystopian narratives that were out there. Um, uh-huh. And like with anything else, like with the paranormal trend and with any trend, people got tired of them. Or the execution wasn't exactly what I wanted, I think, from a dystopian book. Like, what would yeah. you consider the execution of a dystopian book? Like, what would you consider the well-executed one? I don't know, because I think that, for me, part of what the problem was with the big dystopian push was that either, on the one hand, they were super, super bleak, like The Hunger Games, or they were too artificially happy at the end. Like, it, it, I couldn't find that happy medium of, like, that emotional landing place that I wanted to be at. Um... And so that, I think, was hard for me. I didn't really read too many of them. A lot of them were series, too, and I would read, like, the first book, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to finish this series. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, series that were beloved, that were, you know, big dystopian series that I haven't finished and can't really speak to because it just wasn't my thing. But I think, um, I think part of the problem is that we've talked before and recently too about how the problem with formulas is that if you lean too heavily on the formula and you don't add anything fresh and new to it, it becomes really stale really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the problem with the big dystopian push in the two thousands I think what happened is everybody latched onto this formula and the formula had a couple of things. The formula had some sort of system of categorization. We were categorizing people Mm -hmm. by something. They were districts or they were factions or they were, you know, some, some way of categorizing our people. Um, and so that was checkbox number one. You had that. And then you had, you know, love triangles. I think this is when people got really burnt out on love triangles yep. too, because there was always, it was usually a female protagonist. And so we had our protagonist who was a girl. And so there was the boy, um, the childhood best friend, the boy within the world that she'd grown up in, that she started to have feelings for. And then the outsider who came in and opened her eyes. And so then we checked off that box. And I just feel like there was just a lot of this You know, even if not every box was checked in every single story, eventually it just felt like you would open a dystopian book and you just knew what was going to happen. And it was just like the surface level details that were different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that the the reason that dystopian crashed and burned so hard, because even still, I mean... Yeah. And very quickly. I mean, unlike the paranormal trend, which went on for much longer. Yeah, dystopian crashed and burned. And I think even now, it's been years, and even now people are still like, don't show me dystopian, I don't want to see dystopian. And I think it's because after those first few, everything was formulaic, and there was nothing inherently unique to the stories themselves and the characters and, and, you know, 
it, it was just like spackled on world building that made it seem like a new premise, but really it was always the same story. And, you know, I, I always hate saying that genres are dead. Um, I don't think you could sell a dystopian right now. <laughs> uh, but I would still love to see someone try to tell that type of story in a way that makes me want to keep reading, in a way that is new, that doesn't just retread the same old checkboxes again and again. I don't, I don't know if that's possible. I'm sure it's possible. I'm sure that someone could do it. It's just that no one really has, and the genres become tainted as a result. For me, my dystopian fatigue mostly came from the romances in dystopian novels, which... This is me, of course, and which is weird because I do like romances in my books, but I was notorious in my publishing house as an editor at the time because I was an acquiring editor during the dystopian boom. I was just like, these books have too many feelings mm -hmm. in them. And mm -hmm. for me, the narrative that I'm interested in an oppressed versus an oppressor narrative is that. It's the story of right. revolution. And if if I felt the narrative was just being bogged down by feelings just romantic feelings. I got bored. Okay. Yeah. Confession, you guys, this is my problem with the book Outlander. Okay. Like, um, I don't know if you've read it, Kelly. Basically, nope, the basic, ba basic premise is that it's a it's actually pretty good. I enjoyed the first half of it anyway. Um, but it's about a woman who she's the world, the world war two has just ended and she and her husband who are just reconnecting in Scotland she was a nurse. Um, they visit this, like, stone of circles in Scotland, and she gets sucked back in time. 200 years. And so she's now in this era uh, of the Jacobite, the first Jacobite rebellion in Scotland when they were trying to claim, I think, independence from England. So it's, like, interesting political stuff is happening. And I was all about this. I was like, this is fascinating, and I'm, you know, I'm enjoying this. And then, at a, and there's also a character named Jamie that, Claire has a romance with, and I enjoyed that fine. And then they get married. And then all they do is have sex all over the Highlands for like 400 pages. <laughs> I have tried multiple times to finish this book. I have tried, I read it, then I got it on audio, and then I got it on, and then I started watching the TV show Outlander, and I have stopped every single time at the exact same spot, which is right after they get married. I get bored. I just don't care about their relationship. I mean, I care, but I need something else to happen. I was just like, I'm so, I'm so bored. And this was my problem with a lot of dystopians that I was seeing at this time is that it, it not only did they feel often like there were checkbox issues, mm -hmm. but I also felt like this world was built for the sole purpose of keeping our two love interests apart apart yep and that's fine and you know it's just not my thing that's not what i'm looking for when i'm reading a book you know and and of course like romance readers look for different things like if you are a reader of romance the category romance or even just romance novels in general the tropes are what get you into the book and that's fine for a lot of people. There's dystopian romance, there's this or that. But that's not what I was looking for, and that wasn't what I was interested in reading. I wanted the story of revolution and change. And I didn't want basically what was, to me, read as an excuse to tell the story of 
love against all odds, I guess. That's that's not the narrative uh-huh. I care about. So, yeah. Any last words on this? <sighs> no, another kind of all over the place episode, but it's summer, you guys. <laughs> it's summer. I'm tired. We're tired. It's, you know, yep. the, there's a garbage fire political storm happening. So. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'd forgotten for like all of 10 minutes, JJ. I know. Sorry to bring it <laughs> about. bring me back right away. Oh, but speaking of other stuff, what are you, what's going on? What are you working on? Um, I am expecting my edit letter for book two any day now. Um, so it has not yet arrived, but I expect it soon. And I expect to be mostly working only on revisions in the entire month of August. <laughs> Um, thankfully, I don't think I have any travel planned. The fall looks pretty busy for me in terms of travel and events, but um, actual, like, I'm, for the month of August, I'm working. That is my plan mm-hmm. so far. Um, again, still waiting to hear... Um, well, I've heard back about my secret project. I'm just, like, waiting for the go-ahead to, like, talk about it yep. openly. Publishing is so slow. It is very slow. Plus, it is summer, you guys. Like, really, honestly. Oh, my God. It's the worst. I cannot get people <laughs> to answer my emails. <laughs> I So, I went on submission with Winter Song at the beginning of summer and really didn't hear anything until September. So, yeah, I don't expect, I don't expect to. It's just. Just what it is. Oh, yeah. With some editors, I've been trying to set up, you know, like introductory calls or like when people get promoted and they start acquiring, I reach out so we can set up some time to talk. And we've been sending emails back and forth like, oh, sorry, this dropped off my radar. Summer, when are you free? Oh, sorry. And we just go back. I have like six emails in a chain from the same editors <laughs> just being like, someday we'll schedule this phone call. Someday but not we'll this be day. there. Yeah. It's yeah. really just kind of we're in a holding pattern until September. That's just kind of. It's hard. It's hard, but it's true. So are you, so is that what you're working on? Waiting on editors? Yes and no. I actually am kind of working on more stuff. Um, so my, one of my authors, I think I said last time had turned in her revisions. And so, um, I've read the manuscript once and now I'm reading it again and I'm just giving her some minor cleanup stuff. Um, no major rewrites, but just teeny tiny things that we can fix before we go out. Um, and then I'm starting to work on the pitch letter and putting the submission list together and, the submission list I feel great about and the pitch letter I'm just like oh my god I what are words how do you write sentences like like it it was uh I don't even have the first paragraph yet I've got like two sentences that it basically took me all day long to write um and I think I've talked about this before that like once I switch my brain like once I get into that mindset it will come really quickly and it will work but it takes me like Days, if not weeks, to like get my brain to that spot. So, yeah, literally, tough. that's what I did today. It took me like all day to write two sentences <laughs> that I'm pretty sure are garbage. But, but, uh, but hey, I didn't have those two sentences when I woke up this morning. So, um, and then I am also starting to put together my class for the loft literary that I'm teaching in the fall. Um, I'm teaching a workshop on queries. It's a pretty, here we go. This is my plug. You guys, um, I'm teaching a four week course on how to write queries. It'll be a workshop class. So everybody's going to get to write the query and then I will 
you know, critique it and break it down and help you fix it and make it better and give you feedback. Um, and it's online. So anyone, anywhere can take it. Uh, and it's up on the Laugh Literary website right now. There's going to be um, instructional videos and live chats with me every week. And I really want to help people write the best queries that they possibly can because I want to read the best queries that you can write. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited about that. I'm starting to put together my course. I have to write out my little lesson plans. I have to film myself giving lectures, which is going to be interesting. I'll have to set up a more attractive background than what JJ sees when we Skype. But... Yeah, it's also, I was telling Kelly, it's like I was trying to raise my laptop up so she wasn't looking at like my five chins, like the angle that the camera is at right now. Yeah, JJ's just seeing my unmade bed in the in the background of the shot right now. So, so yeah, so I am uh, starting slowly but surely to put that together, and I'm really excited about it. I've never taught online before, so that'll be new for me. Uh, but yeah, I feel pretty good about it. Awesome. So, yeah. Have you been reading anything? Um, no, I have not been reading anything I did I've 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 decided that like it really is unacceptable the length of time that I've had some of these manuscripts for so I've been doing about um one to two manuscripts a day and Mm -hmm. just reading and responding to people so that's been the bulk of my reading David and I are reading uh Six of Crows aloud I think we started that back in the fall and we took a big break um but we just picked it up again and so we're past the halfway point and now we're pretty much in like reading like a couple chapters okay. every night because it's getting it's getting really good so <laughs> that has been and I've read that before but David has not um so most of my reading is still unfortunately work reading. I actually just lost a couple of books from the library because I downloaded them and then they expired before I actually had a chance to read them. I know that feel. Yeah. That happens a lot to me. What about you? Are you reading anything right now or on vacation? Um, I did read, um, I reread Thick as the, no, not Thick as these, Conspiracy of Kings, uh, which is the fourth atoll the queen's thief book by megan whalen whalen turner and i finally got to thickest thieves which was very enjoyable i really it was it's the brilliant thing about megan whalen turner's writing so she doesn't write a book a year she actually takes a while to to write each story and i was on panel with her actually at san diego comic-con um she but every single one of her books has a twist in them that I find brilliant every single time, every time because twists, as we've mentioned before in like our mystery and thriller podcast, twists are really hard. It's really hard to adequately signpost the twist is coming, but also like, you know, have feel, it genuinely be a surprise, have it genuinely be a surprise because I often feel either betrayed or that I've seen it coming. I mind seeing it coming less. Like, if I see a twist coming and it happens the way I thought it would, did, then I feel okay about it because I feel like, oh, maybe I'm being rewarded for being an attentive reader. You know, sometimes it's really obvious and I don't like it, but I really hate it when I feel betrayed. That is my biggest thing, like, if I don't see it coming at all and I don't see any signs and, like, this is my problem with the first book in the Queen's Thief series because your narrator has been actively lying to you, Mm. like actively lying to you. It's one thing that the narrator withholds some key information. That's fine. But if the narrator is actively lying to you, then I'm like, nope, I feel betrayed by this. 
But the other books in the series are not like that, and I would say each book has a twist that I love. And even the twist at the end of The Thief, I'm like, okay, it's a good one, I just hate how it was executed. Um, and the character of Eugenides, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, is my favorite. He is my book boyfriend. He's also not the main character of all the books. I would say he's the main character of the first three. Well, he's the main character of the first two. He's the subject of an unreliable narrator in the third book. And I think the King of Atolia is probably my favorite. Because the King of Atolia, you see Jen or Eugenides from someone else's point of view. And you, we know what Eugenides is like having seen him in the previous books but seeing him through somebody else's eyes who has a very different opinion of him is very funny and it's just a delightful book um and then book four was really a book entirely about political intrigue um and then book five is um basically it's a buddy comedy (laughs) it's like a travel buddy comedy and Jen, Eugenides is hardly in it. In fact, the, the main character from the third book shows up as the main a main character in this one. Um, it was just really fun to like read her take on kind of like a buddy comedy. Um, and again, the twist at the end, I was like, very good, I approve. You, Jen has become, has basically become David Xanatos of this world, so I highly enjoyed that. So I read those kind of on the last couple days of my vacation and um, have a couple of books I need to read for potential blurbs and I'm really, 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 really looking forward to reading uh, The Quill Prince, which I'm kind of like pushing off to like savor. So that's it. That's what I'm reading. And... Any off-menu recommendations? I do have some this week. The first one is the music video, more so than the song, although the song is great too, but the music video is really the thing that I'm recommending, um, of the song New Rules by Dua, Dua Lipa. I'm, I don't know about that pronunciation right there, but have you seen this? Mm-mm. Oh, immediately after we record, you have to go watch this music video. It's it's amazing it's just um she is the singer is a british pop star kind of up and coming and um it's new rules is the name of the song and it's essentially the song is about um getting over your ex and it's set in a hotel in malibu and it's the singer and then like eight to ten other women um and it's highly choreographed but it's not a dance video it's Hmm. just like everybody it's kind of like synchronized like friendship is the best way to describe Ooh, (laughs) synchronized friendship is the best way to describe this video and it's just wonderful and it's just the singer in this group and she's obviously like singing about how like I'm not over my ex and I want to call him and I want to do all this stuff and her friends are like honey no like you're gonna be fine (laughs) You're gonna be fine. And they like, you know, like, it's just, it's just the best music video. And I think it's like my favorite thing. I watch it like five times a day. It just brings me so much joy. Um, And the song is good too. I like the song, but it's really the song and the video that is like, (laughs) that is my favorite thing. So that highly, highly recommend. It's New Rules by D-U-A. Dua is her first name. And then Lipa, L-I-P-A. Um... Hmm. 
and it's great. So highly, highly recommend. The other thing um, is I've been, I watched the entirety of uh, Friends from College, which is on Netflix right now. Yeah. It is not great. There's I've a, heard that. There's a lot I don't like about it. Ultimately, the problem is in the execution because I don't think it really knows what it wants to be. It's not a sitcom. And I think the problem is it looks like a sitcom. Mm -hmm. Like when you click on the Netflix thing, it looks like a sitcom and it's 20 minute episodes. And it's, you know, it like it's got Colby Smulders and like uh, Keegan uh, Michael Key and all these people who are like funny. And you think that they're it's going to be like a sitcom. It's not. It's not. It's funny, but it's not a sitcom and it's not really a comedy either. I don't really care about the main plot, which is the affair between these two characters. Um, so it's got lots of issues that keep it from being really successful. And yet there are things that I loved about it. Um, mostly Fred Savage's character. <laughs> who is just wonderful. He plays a gay man who is just so, like, sweet. Wheatley. He's like a dumb puppy, kind of. Aww. He's like, it's a, it's about a group of people, adults, who are approaching their 40s, who were friends in college, and now they're in their 40s. And they're clearly all in toxic relationships. Like, they're not good for one another as friends, as lovers, as anything. But they are stuck in these roles and these friendships that are so recognizable in a lot of ways, like... I see things that feel true to me when I watch this show. They're not necessarily great truths, <laughs> but I see how you can revert into a certain type of self when you're around other people. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this show, I think, does a great job of exploring that. And Fred Savage plays one of these friends, and he's, you know, all of the other people are, most for the most part, like, outright horrible they're just not good people. Um, but Fred Savage is just kind of the one who's just like, well, I just love you guys. So if we're going to do something dumb, I guess I'll, I'll do something dumb with you. Like, <laughs> like, like, okay, like, sure. And he's just like really enthusiastic and he's just adorable. And he also plays an agent, uh, a literary agent. Oh. <laughs> and um, Keegan Michael Key is an author who's then their friends. And he's also, um, Fred Savage's client and it is a very hyper you know it's not accurate in terms of what publishing is like but also it's like the show Younger it's yeah. like anytime yeah. I watch Younger I'm just like that's not how publishing works oh well it's not it's not how publishing works but also sometimes there's like a teeny little like thing where you're like okay that's real <laughs> <laughs> alright that's real and so it's just it's it's not good. I can't say like, yes, this is a good TV show that everyone will enjoy, but I watched all of it. I can't stop thinking about it since I watched it. There's a lot of little things in it that I think were great, even though I think the show as a whole is a failure. Like, so I'm not recommending it in the same way I recommend Glow, which I just right. wholeheartedly, unabashedly recommend with all my heart. I do think that um, Friends from College does fail but I think that there are good things within it and so I think if you're interested and have nothing else to do it's not a waste of time to watch it I don't think it's a waste um, I just don't think it's successful yeah yeah 
I do have a recommendation. This is the TV show Legion. Um, I've heard about this with uh, Dan Stevens, and this is this is based on, this is based on a character in the X Men universe, Legion. Um, I was so skeptical for multiple reasons. I'm not into superhero shows. I've also reached pretty much superhero fatigue. Like, aside from Wonder Woman, and I will watch Thor Ragnarok, um, but aside from kind of those properties, I really just, I don't care. I've never gotten into any of the Netflix shows for Marvel. I have not seen a single episode of the DC TV show universe. Like, I haven't seen Supergirl or Arrow or any of those. Um, and Legion is FX, um, and it's directed by the guy who did the TV show Fargo. It's like it's like a passion project of his. Sometimes when you see a passion project, you're like, oh no, this is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when this it shows like a hobby. Yeah, it's like sometimes you're like, it's written, created, and produced by one person. I'm like, oh dear, this could be good or it could be terrible. Um, but I. So I was really skeptical, and then, like, my other reason is I have this, like, irrational dislike of Dan Stevens. <laughs> and it's, like, completely irrational. It's just, like, it doesn't... Yeah. It's not founded on anything. I loved him as Cousin Matthew in Downton Abbey. Um, and but then he, he should lost. never be in anything else. <laughs> no, I agree. Well, that's probably not true, but I just loved him so much in cousin, as Cousin Matthew. And then he lost, like, a ton of weight and looks totally different and kind of like a rat. Like, there's something pointy about his face that I just was disguised when he was a little bit heavier. Um, and I just kind of like, no, nah, I don't really, I don't really like this. But anyway, and, like, it was kind of a reason, like, we mentioned last week the Beauty and the Beast movie, but um, the Beauty and the Beast movie, which I did see on the plane to California, I was kind of like, this is not great. And I don't, for multiple reasons, and part of it was just like, Dan Stevens was fine, but I just don't. But he is not who you would n- know. There are multiple other problems with Beauty and the Beast yes. that oh, yes. I, won't, I won't go into, but like, was not a fan. But anyway, so... Dan Stevens plays um, David Haller, who is the character of Legion. And I was kind of like, eh. But Lee, Lee Bardugo and I, were, we were walking around. There's a huge promo, promo for the second season of Legion at San Diego Comic-Con. And she's like, oh, this show's really good. And I was kind of like, is it, though? <laughs> and she's like, yes, it is. I was like, fine, I will. Um, and I, it was a, on the plane, and I got sucked in. Really? Yes. It... I'm about halfway through. It's pretty good. I think there are elements of it that get a little bit old because the premise initially is that he is, you think he is, a dis- if you don't know that this is based on the X-Men universe, you think he is a mentally disturbed young man. Um, and so a lot, a lot of the first episode plays with, is this real? Is this not real? Is this, you know, and it's very stylish. Like it's a really stylishly directed show as well. And so this conceit of whether or not is it a function of his mental illness or is is this really happening kind of a thing. That's the main tension of the first episode. And then at the end of the episode, you realize, nope, it's real. He has powers. Um, And so the rest of the show is him kind of dealing with that, but also like dealing with his trauma and 
his, I would argue, very real mental illness in addition to that, and but also, like, sorting through that to deal with his powers and all sorts of stuff. It's, despite my dislike of Dan Stevens, he is very good in it. And the show is pretty well done. Um, for the most part, pretty well written. Now, there, there's, there are some clunkers here and there, but I really enjoyed it, and I was sort of surprised, and I was like, fine, you were right, Lee. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> So that's my one one recommendation for this week. Nice. So we did get one question on mm-hmm. our hashtag. Um, I don't see any new reviews, but no, we, can... we broke our streak. Womp womp. Okay, so this question is um, from at Abigail Fair. What happens to my, I think she meant publishing dreams, because <laughs> uh, it's punishing, so, but she, <laughs> punishing dreams, oh dear. <laughs> what happens to my publishing dreams when I move to Australia? Nothing. Um, yeah. I mean, you decide what you want your primary market to be. If you want it to be Australia, then you query Australian agents. And if you want it to be the U.S., then you query U.S. agents. And that's it. I mean, um, nowadays, it's really easy to work with people from anywhere. You can email. You can Skype. Um, I am... I haven't signed a client, but I have actually requested um, a revised manuscript and I'm working with um, an author in Australia on some edits on her manuscript so that hopefully I can represent her in the future. Um, And she and I just kind of email and we've decided that if we need to talk, uh, we can set up a Skype, even though the time is kind of weird. You can usually work something out. So nothing really changes. You You can publish from anywhere. I I would agree. I mean, we mentioned before in our subrights is basically, and I think we answered a a previous question, but it's basically you query the agent where you want your primary market to be in. Mm -hmm. So if you want your primary market to be in Australia, which Australia does have a very good YA market, Mm -hmm. um, my agent and agency actually has a pretty good strong hold is probably not the best word, but... um, Really presence good relationship. Corner, yeah. Yeah, really good presence and relationships with Australian authors. And um, so it, it doesn't really matter. Just continue to write in English and query either US or UK or Australian agents. And you can get published in your home country or adopted home country first. Or you can get a, you know published in the US first. Again, it all depends on where you want your primary market to be. Mm-hmm. That's all for this week. Next week, we will be covering the heist narrative, which Yay! is something both Kelly and I really enjoy. So I love as, them. I know. I do, too. They're great. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it does help other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram with Publishing Crawl. 
You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or um, using the hashtag on Twitter, AskPubCrawl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye!